Welcome to Bollywood is for Lovers, part of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. Uh, it's Matt Bose here, and uh, we have an interesting supplemental episode for you this week. Uh, I was lucky enough to speak to Debashree Mukherjee, author of the new uh, author of the new book Bombay Hustle, um, which is all about making uh, movies in uh, Mumbai during the uh, studio period of filmmaking, which is something we've never really been able to access here on Bollywood for Lovers. A lot of those uh, movies were lost. We'll get into that in the interview. And if they are lo- if they aren't lost, it's difficult to find them uh, with subtitles, which is something we need. But uh, I think uh, Debashit brings up a really interesting website that you should check out for some of this really old material. Uh, I keep saying I keep thinking pre-code, but that's what it would be in Hollywood. But uh, yeah, this is the studio era. So uh, with my conversation with Debashri, we started off kind of talking about uh, the author Monto, who she profiles in her book and who worked in the film industry, as she did herself. But uh, give it a few minutes and we eventually loop around to talking about the book. So it's a bit of a circuitous introduction, but you'll get there. So anyway, uh, here's the interview with uh, Debashri Mukherjee. So I'm speaking today with uh, Devashree Mukherjee, uh, author of Bombay Hustle, Making Movies in a Colonial City. And uh, you were just telling me about uh, uh, the the motto sections of your books, the uh, the famous author and how he interacted with the film industry by being a writer on set, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, so actually, Manto was my route into this entire project <laughs> because I was working in Bombay as a practitioner. At that time, I think this must have been around 2005, I was working as an assistant director and just finishing up uh, work on the film Omkara, directed by Vishal Bhadwaj. One of our favorites. You did a good job. I'm so, I, I feel so, so lucky to have been part of that project. Because as an assistant director, you're basically a freelancer. So you're moving mm-hmm. from film to film and you could be doing a Vishal Bhadwaj film one day and then you could be doing a not so exciting <laughs> film then the next day. So I wow. lucked out in my brief time in Bombay. That was the but movie was... that sold me on Saif Ali Khan. Like, this guy is amazing. When, when he's trying, he's so good. I think that was the film that sold Saif Ali Khan on Saif Ali Khan, wow. right? I think he really, because I think he, he wasn't very sure that that was the kind of role for him because it was really out of the box, mm-hmm. you know, for the kind of Saif characters. But I, Vishal really saw the potential there uh, and, it, and it, he like went out on a limp to do it. I mean, it's, Saif did. It's my favorite version yeah. of Othello I've ever seen anywhere and he's an amazing Iago, so... And it's and the thing is that when I saw Magbul, uh, and I had no intention of working in films at that time, I was like, this is one of my favorite versions of Macbeth I've seen anywhere. Like, how clever is this to make the three witches into these two corrupt, like, constables? Mm-hmm. I mean, there were just so many things that blew my mind about it. Uh, but, uh, and I'm sure that this conversation is going to be as meandering <laughs> as it already is. It is a podcast, so it's okay. <laughs> It kind of comes with the form. But this is also the way in which I, something I learned from Manto back then, that Manto really writes in a very digressive style. uh, And especially the writings of his that are not that well known, like the short stories he writes about Bombay City, about the Bombay film world. 
where he'll always tell you that, oh, I'm going to tell you today about the book Bombay Hustle that I just read. <laughs> and then in three lines, it's going to be about everything but the book. And But by the end of the story, there will be a sense you'll get of the, of the thing that he's talking about, which will be more than mere description. Okay. So I learned that that was a very good way to actually create an atmosphere about a time or a place or a film. Uh, so it became a very good uh, method for me to do history. Well, it gets you he into the vibe, the Vatavaran, as we like to say. The Vatavaran, <laughs> exactly. Which, which actually works really well now that you mention it for this ecological method that I yeah. am trying to um, uh, craft and and really argue for in this book. Yeah. So um, you know, there's so much to talk about here, but. Can you tell our listeners uh, a little bit about what this book is and your idea of the cine ecology, as you call it? Because I think that's a really interesting way of looking at, you know, an artistic economy, a cultural, uh, a cultural industry. So the book is uh, it's more than 300 pages long, so you'll have to read it to know <laughs> what it's about. But very briefly, I'll tell you why I wrote the book. The reason was that, A, as you know, I was a practitioner in Bombay, like not even doing this towards another end. It's because I I really wanted to learn how to make uh, commercial films and to do it well. Uh, and at some point, I got very interested in trying to figure out how we came to this place. Right? What is the history of the practices, the forms, the economy, uh, the structures, the star system. Um, so I started doing research on my own. So this book is a product of that many, many, more than a decade of research wow. into trying to think back, track back to see where does Bollywood come from. Uh, and it looks at a very particular moment, the, the transition to the talkies. So mm. from the silent era to talkie cinema in the early 1930s, and it specifically is interested in doing a history of film work and film practice. So this is something that I, as a practitioner, was very much committed to. And it's something that I felt was a big gap in existing studies of, of Hindi cinema, of Bollywood, where we don't really pay too much attention to production, to practitioners, to the labor of making films, to all the decisions that go into making film, to the techniques, the technologies. Uh, so this is a book about a history of film as a history of material practice. Yeah, it's 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 material, it's labor, it's uh, financial and historical and also political in that uh, these filmmakers were working underneath the colonial administration. And so forgive me if I'm getting this wrong, but it felt like the, the colonial administrators were kind of letting this be a cottage industry. It was like, they're going to make movies for themselves and they, you know, they want to, they want to partake in this entertainment, but we're kind of not going to let them get too big. Mm -hmm. And the, the access to funding especially seemed to be kind of, um, you know, pushing down by the, the colonial administration. And instead they had to turn to gambling on cotton futures, which was one of the most fascinating parts of the whole book. Can you tell mm -hmm. me a little bit about this, this, this whole the, the way that the, the fundraising for films started off in a weird way and then never really got to the capitalization you see in other countries. Mm -hmm. So I guess one of the things that's important to think about is what were the British thinking about what was happening in terms of Indian indigenous filmmaking? 
and they basically just got the they just didn't get the plot at mm-hmm. all they like, they didn't really they weren't able to understand how quickly this nascent uh, technological and art form became so wildly popular right and that and they couldn't kind of figure out uh, the huge financial kind of stakes of this as an emerging industry because if they had they would have done more to mm-hmm. manage it in some ways so in many senses the colonial gaze at the film industry was primarily to um discipline and sense of content so are these films propagating any messages that would be anti colonial mm-hmm. that would rouse indian publics into rising against the british administrators the colonizers and they were only looking at films from a censorship perspective so they were not really interested in what was happening uh, financially industrially and the neglect question about not financing funding supporting or even intensifying incentivizing through through tax breaks this was something that the british uh, colonial administration was doing across the board for every indigenous industrial form so there was a huge amount of criticism of the colonial government from textile manufacturers from cotton manufacturers from steel makers from any any industrial capitalist um endeavor in india in the 1920s saying that you are making it really hard for us to create something totally indian and swadeshi mm-hmm. and of course that was obvious because the british were in india so that they could extract uh, raw materials produce it in industries in in the metropole in the uk and then sell it back to indians as a market so they were not here to kind of help india grow as as a production center and they did that same thing with film so that's that's the why um film became a very interesting avenue for a lot of black money mm-hmm. uh, a lot of unregulated cash to be siphoned because it was not being watched uh, as strictly as other industries and other speculative venues um in the city Yeah, it's very much in the sort of mercantilist mode of like the 18th century, but they kept it going in India far longer and, you know, eventually they got kicked out. So good, but you could you kind of see it got it it sort of handicapped the industry against uh Germany and uh France and and especially Hollywood obviously because you mentioned the the easy access to capital is a huge part of what makes Hollywood work and if you're betting on, you know, futures of cotton in India to get your next movie fundraised it's like it's a little bit more risky so it's definitely very risky but one of the things that i'm trying to do in that first chapter is to say that this entire industry would have been impossible if it wasn't for some very um uh, very kind of adventurous and you could say predatory obviously as well but some very adventurous risk takers mm-hmm. who said okay i i can see a possibility here of getting you know 10 20 100 times of returns on my investment and i'm going to take a gamble with this and the main difference with uh, for a other very prominent industries at the time is so in um in the uk in france in germany there's a lot of kind of state um investment mm-hmm. in in industry in china and japan initially there's a lot of private investment which soon then the state also takes an interest 
but india is uh, colonized till 1947 right so the state is basically the colonizer and you have to remember that film emerges in the world in the 1890s mm-hmm. so that's about 60 years of the uh, 61st years of cinema in the world is when india is still colonized so that kind of freedom right uh, to be able to i mean the conditions of possibility that make this industry possible is laid in a lot of the colonial condition which makes it impossible so mm-hmm. there's a lot of hustling right which is why the book is called bombay hustle there's a lot of hustle that goes on at various levels from financial to imaginative to bodily uh, that really makes uh, the foundations for this industry part of which we now call bollywood mm-hmm. yeah that's that uh, that brings up another thing where you talked about a concept that i'm sure many of our listeners would know about and i'm sure i've seen in movies but i don't understand inherently because i'm not from india not an indian person but that's a struggle in uh, yeah. in uh, bombay especially can you expand a little bit about uh, that because it seems like it's tied into this just kind of is it the same thing as you know a uh, a waitress in uh, new york who wants to be a broadway star or you know same thing in la what what what's what's kind of the difference there between the struggle so it's definitely a term for ad, an aspiration for someone who wants to make it in bollywood right to have a big break in some way perhaps to make it as a star most often and that journey to that place is called a struggle what's very interesting is that the word struggle and then the self identification of oneself as a struggler these are words that are used by people in the original english mm-hmm. and which is why i use it in the book and i say that it sees it has ceased to be an english word in mm-hmm. that sense it's such a bombay word um and so when i was working in film in in bombay in the mid 2000s i would call myself a struggler because why had i gone to bombay i had gone to bombay so that i could become a cinematographer i mean at that time my initial impulse was to be a gaffer i like nothing better <laughs> than to to light up a scene <laughs> I, i really didn't know very much but i would call myself a struggler because a struggler is someone who has no contacts in the film industry who has no money right but who has all this passion all this desire all this energy and all this love for cinema and and they have only one goal which is someday in the future a future that is always impending that they will make it mm-hmm. right so which is why i for me struggle is a very important um um experience and phenomenon to understand and to take it very seriously if we have to understand what allows this very amazingly powerful but also very precarious making and vulnerable making industry survive mm-hmm. it's because of the desire for all of these people that are invested in this thing called the struggle yeah and i think uh, what shahar khan would be like the, the the nowadays version of the guy from nowhere who ends up becoming this big star but you talked about a few in the 30s too that people emulated and came all the way there to uh, try and meet or be like um mm-hmm. do you want to talk about that a little bit It's actually interesting that you you mentioned Shahrukh Khan and because I I begin the sixth chapter with Shahrukh Khan and I mention him because of his appearance in the film Fan mm-hmm. directed by Manish Sharma which I think is a very ingenious use of a star 
to tell a story about the relationship between a star and a fan but it's so very crucial to sharukh khan's star journey the knowledge the public knowledge of his struggle mm-hmm. so the fact that he's an outsider to bombay he comes from delhi from a middle class family he's brought up by a mom like i think he he loses his dad very early on he's not coming from money he's not got any film contacts he's he struggles right he takes these theater acting lessons then he works in television and what is it that he's got right it's mainly that energetic sharukness mm-hmm. uh that really helps him like explode onto the screen and that kind of a journey of struggle is very critical to the manufacture of a star persona and and one of the things that i show in the book is how this is a journey that gets recycled over and over again since the 1920s so for a very very earliest film stars of bombay cinema is a woman called sulochana you that's just one name sulochana her first name it's a screen name her real name is ruby myers now sulochana the story that really circulated about her is that she used to be a telephone operator in the 1920s and then she got discovered right mm-hmm. by some producer with a good eye and then she made it and then she then started circulating her own stories about how she earned a salary that was more than the salary of the governor of bombay at the time right so this kind of drags to riches kind of a story really adds and enhances the glamour of the star and for me what's very very exciting about this time period is that the star at this time is undeniably female mm-hmm. right so the the biggest icons of financial power of glamour of success at this time are women are actresses um and i really wanted to kind of spend some time uh talking about that yeah it was In kind of book. interesting because you're talking about almost sort of the the fetishistic the fetishistic interest in the star from male people men watching the movies but then also women kind of they want to aspire to that they're interested in how they became a star and you mention a few women in your book who went to bombay just because of a star and it's it's also it's it's kind of like a transference of energy like i'm seeing that person on screen i want to be them mhm mhm yeah thanks for picking up on that because there's a lot of uh, discussion in the second part of the book on this idea of energy and how useful energy or thinking with energy becomes for me because one of the things i want to do in the book is to show that we're losing a lot um in terms of understanding cinema if we have very discrete boundaries between production reception exhibition so energy flows become a good way for me to try to connect up all these different aspects and um yeah i mean the the fan becomes a very very important historical figure for me uh to connect up all these different spaces of film that we like to pretend are separate right the mm-hmm. theater is separate from the studio is separate from the the film review but they're all very much uh, actually connected and uh, one of the things that was actually very interesting for me was to think about the fan as someone that's not just behaving in the ways that we expect fans to behave which is go and stand in front of mannat on like sharukh's birthday or something right we mm-hmm. understand that that's a fan i was interested in some kinds of 
practices that fans do, which don't look legible because they're not cliched. Uh, and one of these practices for me was when fans decide that they want to become a part of this thing that they desire so much. And the decision is to go and join the film industry as a film practitioner. So what is it that, uh, that takes someone, there could be 200 people watching a movie on one day, and two of those people, after coming out of the theater, say, you know what, I'm not going to buy a poster of Shah Rukh Khan. I'm going to go to Bombay. I'm not even going to stand in front of Mannat. I'm going to go and look for a job mm-hmm. and work in this city that Shah Rukh lives and breathes in. That's it, right? And maybe I can become the next star. Yeah. So that is, for me, very important. And I think it's historically very important to understand that cycle of energy because it's what allows an industry to stay afloat. Mm-hmm. You cannot have an industry without workers. There's so much scandal around Bollywood, right? Everyone knows about all the dark things that could happen in Bollywood. So why do people still want want in? Right? Obviously, it's because they want money and power and fame, but it's also because they just want to be a part of this thing that they love. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of a an anti-nepotism cycle right now, too. And you do need to cycle through new people to join the industry and how do they do it? Well, they see a movie and they think that's them. But also, uh, the fans also are a valuable resource to you as the historian because they do things like make scrapbooks and magazines. Mm-hmm. And they actually are able to capture some films that you're not able to anymore because the film's lost. But the the advertisements and uh, people's notes about what they thought about the movies, those existed. So the fans are also mm-hmm. sort of keeping the history of the movies alive. No, and I think you're absolutely right. I had written an article uh, a bit before I wrote this book, which was basically thinking about the fan as a kind of an amateur historian, but also as a model and an inspiration for what the film historian ought to be doing. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that was I was, I was looking at the scrapbook made by a, a, a man um, in the 1940s where he put together these cuttings and clippings of film posters, advertisements, tickets he had collected, and he stuck it into this kind of a visual narrative, right? And the the images would kind of open out and fold back in, and they would be talking to each other. And trying to think about the logic of how he juxtaposed those things was very useful, because they're not juxtaposed in any clearly legible hierarchical way where it's all going to be about one star or it's only going to be about one kind of film or it's only going to be one genre. So one of the things that I found very useful and I theorized it as a kind of libidinal logic that it's purely going on your desire for something, right? Something ephemeral, Mm -hmm. something ephemeral like film. And you're putting this together in a kind of intuitive logic and what could it be, uh, what could it do for film history if we were also able to inhabit that space where we put things together or we decided to look at things or even study something uh, out of this place of love and desire uh, instead of preconceived notions of what is valuable to study, what is an appropriate thing to question and so on. Um, so I call that that particular collector figure a kinetomaniac Mm -hmm. someone who's like maniacally uh, collecting things with no goal in mind right i'm not he doesn't know that he's going to like sell this book someday or it's going to be in a museum or anything Mm -hmm. and the present day counterpart to that figure has helped my book so very much 
and I really want to acknowledge them. It's all the bloggers, all the YouTubers online right now, right? That are putting up like digitized copies of early gramophone snippets, old songs, assiduously like, you know, interviewing uh, descendants of stars of the 1930s. And they have put together a huge archive uh, of film history, which is which is freely available online. Uh, and they're doing it out of love. I think you can also see stuff like uh, fan fiction these days and the way that people, um, you know, want to draw a picture of a, a scene from a movie they like or actress they like or they make a, like a song or something. These, uh, these energies are being sublimated. You know, some people, they get that bug and they want to go be an actor. Some of them, mm-hmm. they just want to exert their creative control by making their own version of the movie or, you know, mm-hmm. writing a sequel or something. So it is, yeah, that, that energy, the really the magic of cinema is seeing, you know, beautiful people doing um, impossible things on screen. And then mm-hmm. somehow it changes you. It's changed my life. It's made me make a podcast about Bollywood. It's made you write a book about uh, well, yeah. pre-Bollywood. It's made, yeah. like, it, 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 it does get your hooks into you in a certain way, hey? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's true, and it's it's very very hard. It's like it's it's been this thing that's been um, really determining my my journey all of these years, and I've experimented with so many ways to kind of find a way to express that energy. Because I went to film school, I came, I graduated from film school, thinking, okay, so obviously I want to be making films, and then very quickly I said, this is actually not for me. I'm interested in a more solitary journey and I want to think about the history of this thing. And now this book is out there. And, um, but none of those things could have happened without the other. Mm -hmm. I couldn't have written this book if I didn't have a very committed firsthand experience of working in Bombay. Like I couldn't have just done this as an academic trying to understand what it means to make films. Because there's a lot of things here that are very much interested in thinking about how the body feels uh, on set, mm-hmm. right? And and that is something you can only, I think, describe or even start to recognize if you've spent many days, weeks, hours, months on a film set, mm-hmm. uh, which allows you to understand that this is something very interesting and peculiar. It's unlike other things that I've experienced in my life. Yeah, the body, the body uh, politics stuff is really interesting. The the Manto story you uh, cite, there's kind of like a buff actor guy, and Manto's mm-hmm. insert character doesn't like him. But there's mm-hmm. also a kind of, um, I hesitate to say, but kind of like fascist look at you know beautiful bodies, and also mm-hmm. cleanliness is something you bring mm-hmm. up when mm-hmm. you're talking about sort of this industrial age and how. Uh, maybe it's the metropole and maybe it's people living in uh, India themselves. They want to portray, you know, this is a scientifically perfect, clean society. And there's so many mm-hmm. different sort of body politics things mixing together. I thought that was fascinating. Mm-hmm. No, thank you for that. I mean, uh, with energy, the thing that I was trying to get at was this thing, right? That one has to think about energy as something that is embodied and whether it's in the body of a human or a non-human, right? It's mm-hmm. this thing that gets activated through the encounter between different things. And that is again central to the idea of the ecological, that things don't just make meaning in and of themselves, right? A film doesn't mean anything 
until it has an encounter with a particular viewer mm -hmm. and then between that viewer and that film some meaning emerges which is very different from the meaning that emerges between an, the same film and another viewer which becomes very clear to us today when we are watching films in such a privatized kind of a form right like one person on their cell phone or their tablet or something but so that was very very important for me to think about these encounters and then to think about bodies because experience is very very important in this book what does it mean or feel like to make movies um and to do that i had to kind of create a, a kind of uncover or or re rethink an entire history of the 1930s in india outside of film and think about what was being said about energy at that time so one of the things that i say in one of the chapters is that if you look at the films from this time the ones that are still extant and unavailable to watch you'll notice that there's a lot of emphasis on energy and what what i call an aesthetics of vitality mm -hmm. all the bodies all the gestures um all the plots are very much premised on something very active and vital kind of leaping from the screen and of course cinema has always been interested in movement and energy but i try to understand this aesthetics of vitality specifically within 1930s india where as you're absolutely right there are multiple body politics at play so there is the idea of countering many many decades of colonial racist stereotyping of the indian body as a weak body mm -hmm. so a lot of cultural ways to kind of counter that by saying one second the indian body can be muscular and strong and through that individual body you can make an argument that india as a nation is capable of governing itself but at the same time this is the 1930s mm -hmm. and we know what's happening in germany and in europe and that kind of an investment in the healthy clean ideal body right is definitely circulating across the world and bombay is a port city which sees a lot of traffic with all these other important metropolitan cities so those kinds of aesthetics of fascism are not that alien they're moving there are many different imaginaries that are moving through bombay at the time mm -hmm. right so uh, communism is a very communist internationalism is a very very vital and vibrant force in bombay at this time but there are also these other ideas about the healthy body and shanta apte's some of her writing uh, does dip into that a little bit um yeah let's talk about her then, a little bit we haven't got yeah. into her we talked a little bit earlier but she is a fascinating figure that i'd never heard of um yeah. I mean, i'm not super well versed in this I, i i've only read your book but it was it was very exhaustive can you and exhaustive is an interesting term for this can you can you talk <laughs> about shanta apte because i think our listeners would be kind of fascinated to learn about this person so shanta apte i think if you're um, someone who lives in india or did live in india at some point and watch marathi films uh, you would be very familiar with this name it's it's from another generation obviously but shanta apte is someone who had a very long career uh, starting as a singer and a film performer in the 1930s but i think she worked for a, a, a quite a few decades and she ended towards the end of her career she worked mostly in marathi language films so she's a maharashtrian woman uh, and the reason that i dedicate a whole chapter to her is because there are two events and i can only call them events because mm -hmm. they are just so spectacular in their meaning and in the way they were staged 
and that she is the originator of these events. So one of these is a hunger strike that she does. So in protest against the producers of this very famous uh, film studio, talkie film studio called Prabhat Film Company, uh, which was in Pune at the time, and she was a salaried uh, star at that company. And she was really uh, trying to protest some of the very kind of strict restrictions of the contract that she had with them. And she decides to go on a hunger strike. So she's, uh, she goes to the, the gate of the studio. And if you've been to Pune or you live in Pune now, you'll know that what used to be Prabhat Film Company is today the Film and Television Institute of India. Mm. So you can actually go to that gate today to see where Shantate sat. And then she did this very, it's, it's really like a kind of event for, for the age of Twitter and mm-hmm. social media. It felt because like that, yeah. She, she was very, harnessing public opinion and getting into yeah. the magazines and stuff. And she, she knew her audience very, very well. It was very publicity savvy. Like they had obviously sent out information to journalists saying, hey, this is going to happen. My hunger strike is going to start at noon. Um, I hope you're all there. (laughs) Yeah, because and then she had very strategically her lawyer and her, her doctor there. And the doctor told her very strategically within 24 hours that I don't think your body can take it anymore. We have weighed you again and you've lost a few pounds. And mm-hmm. she says that, okay, on my doctor's advice, I'm going to terminate this, this hunger mm-hmm. fast. It's very dramatic, right? though. So, like the doctor there, like, oh, no, she might die if she keeps doing this. Someone must pay attention to this woman. <laughs> so very dramatic, very well scripted. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm saying all of these things not to say that this is not to say that why, why would a woman do this kind of very canny strategic thing? I'm saying this to actually congratulate her mm-hmm. for actually understanding very clearly what it means to be a star and using her own self and her star status in exactly the way that the producers were using her star status anyway. Mm-hmm. So because one of the impulses of that strike was to say that the producers are exploiting my body, my time, my energy, my star status for certain reasons. And I want to own these things right now. I will hence deplete my body, right? I will waste away all of these things because only I have a right to my body. So she perfectly understands what it means to be a star. She perfectly understands that a female star has a very limited shelf life, Mm -hmm. right? That unless she can really capitalize on her youth and her talent and her popularity, her career will be over very soon. Um, And she says that I should be the one controlling this and not as a contracted uh, kind of a servant of a studio. So that was very huge because no one else in this time period uh, did such a kind of a direct explicit face-off with the studio over the terms of their contract. So that was just very important for me to study and then to think about why did she pick a hunger strike? What are the other ways that she could have done this? Um, And then it made sense for me because I found this unpublished, I mean, now out of print book that she wrote in 1940, which is titled very sarcastically, Zaumi Cinemat, which means, should I join the movies? Mm -hmm. Question mark. (laughs) It's a rhetorical question because her answer in the book is no. (laughs) Like, are you crazy? Why would you want to join uh, the movies? So it's a very harsh kind of polemic 
about the film industry as a very extractive capitalist machine and again i have never read anything written in those in that language with that politics about film in the 1930s and 40s so i had to do some real work with trying to present those events for the contemporary reader in a way that we can make sense of why she did what she did it's not as uh, gossipy but it's like bollywood babylon right like here's behind the scenes here's how people get exploited you take it from me don't don't be don't have this happen to you that's true so it is in that genre of the 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 dark world of of film but it's not gossipy because there's not a single real person's name in that book mm-hmm. she doesn't mention anyone by name except herself at at a few points yeah if that's out of print and you know if you could look into the legality of it that would be a great thing to just kind of bring back yeah so that's definitely something i want to do because i think it's such an important voice from that age and it's a voice that has a lot to offer practitioners and uh, women and filmmakers today anyone that's interested in thinking about uh, about uh, you know what is the relation between the the body uh, and industry and what are the rights of the workers and how to make sense of it all uh, and i got the book actually from shanta apte's daughter wow. naina apte who gave me a photocopy <laughs> of the book <laughs> uh and uh, but it was that was many years ago and uh, if i go back to bombay the next time i can manage to make the flight i will definitely meet naina and see what she thinks about um a translation and a publication in english yeah cuz it made me think of uh, some articles that we saw two or three years ago as sort of youtube celebrities started to burn out and they were talking about how i have to make you know 15 minutes of content every single day my fans they demand it and mm-hmm. these are people who kind of locked into fame it's someone mm-hmm. who just like was able to talk about their plants really well or had, was knowledgeable about various pets and then it turns mm-hmm. into an addiction for their audience mm-hmm. uh and you know i think that would actually be a very useful tool for people in the social media age like how much of yourself do you give to your job how much of mm-hmm. your how much of your personality your your own background how much of that belongs to the people who watch you on a screen all day mhm and you know now that you mentioned that i think one of the things that so after the book came out and we were bang in the middle of this pandemic and we were all just worried about our health and feeling isolated yeah so one of the things that came back to me about shanta apte's book during this pandemic time is that she says something very beautiful there that actually has relevance for us one of the things she's saying about the relationship between the worker and uh, and the studio is that the studio doesn't realize right that the studio ought to realize the producers ought to realize the importance of care and nurture right mm-hmm. in order to make the best kinds of film products and which is why she talks a lot about energy and the depletion of energy that what it means to be exhausted from doing film work from being on set and how important it is to try and renew that that lost energy and very very critically right we live in highly neoliberal times where the entire onus right is on us mm-hmm. you want to do well you go find a gig you want a fit body you go to the gym you invest your money and you basically it's all on you and what she's saying is no 
you know i am my responsibility is to practice my craft to to nurture my body but the studio has to make the investment that will allow me to take a gym membership mm-hmm. or that will give me medical insurance or whatever else is required for me to nurture and care for this thing that is a very precious resource for the studio now that is something i think it's very very important in our day and age to remember that care and nurture is very important for us and each other but also that we have forgotten uh, in the so called creative industries that are cinema or the desire to be creative or the desire to be an artist does not preclude the necessity of having job security mm-hmm. health insurance right a retirement funds what have you that people in our parents generation just took for granted yeah and that we somehow have been taught to believe goes against the grain of being an artist mm-hmm. that an artist is someone who just lives on bread and water and shantaap is telling you no i am an artist and a worker at the same time i have no conflict in thinking of myself as proletarian and as 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 creative and i'm going to demand all these things that will help me nurture myself and my craft i think that's just hugely powerful well yeah and like with us all stuck at home right now what are we doing to stay sane while well, we're watching movies or reading books and if the artists are not able to make these things if they're not able to take the time away from their job to write if they're not able to learn dance steps that kind of thing they're not going to be mm-hmm. able to make the um the artistic products that keep us sane so mm-hmm. yeah i i think society does need to kind of reckon with the way that artists are treated and the way that they're often seen as disposable mm-hmm. you know in body and no, soul and I, and i think that's another gift that shantaapte gives us she's writing this book at a time when she's a star mm-hmm. right but she has no hesitation in equating herself with every other person that does acting or dancing work which is what allows me to then spend a lot of time in my book on people that are not stars mm-hmm. people that will have zero social media presence like no one's going to follow their twitter handle because they are background dancers they are stunt workers like right? their whole job as a stunt worker is to make sure that you will never see their real selves yeah. because you ought to see whatever tom cruise or someone else So how does one think about those people those bodies and and their labor and their work so um i spend a lot of time in the book in also trying to say that it's very important to also to remember that films are made especially big budget popular bombay films by hundreds of people mm-hmm. um and we tend to fixate on a few of them and of course they're doing good work but their work and their status would not be possible without this entire ecology of other bodies um and other energies and i try to kind of think about how is it that one can talk about this uh and and how is it important to a history of cinema to try and uncover the story of one female extra or one stuntman who dies in a car crash right or one ele- camera person who gets electrocuted on set like what does it add to our understanding of bombay cinema yeah that's something we've tried to do with the show is um you get these directors and stars who have done pretty heinous things um you know me too you know that kind of stuff you we've learned about some directors and their bad um interactions with women especially yeah and what we try to do is like 
you know, we don't really want to review their movies, but we also know that, you know, a hundred other people worked on the movie and, you know, they're probably proud of what they've done. It's not, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's, 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 there's that auteurist thing of like the director had a vision and then it just happened mm-hmm. somehow, but no, mm-hmm. there's actually a lot of people involved in putting the movie together. And that's something we've had to reckon with like kind of critically is can we look mm-hmm. at a movie by this person? Well, you know, there's an interesting performance there, or maybe the cinematography is fantastic, or maybe the songs are mm-hmm. great. It's not necessarily mm-hmm. one person kind of spoiling the whole film. So, yeah, it's 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 definitely a hurdle that we've kind of dealt with. Um, mm-hmm. But going back to yeah, the end of the book is kind of looking at uh, three uh, people who died over the course of making films, and also kind of where they were spatially in uh, in Bombay. You were talking about mm-hmm. kind of like what their day looked like basically the day they died Mm -hmm. i thought that was really fascinating Mm -hmm. um and just the way you were able to track down what those parts of town would have looked like some of them are you know some of them are in the city now but other times they would have been kind of rural at the uh, at the time Uh, Mm -hmm. that's just another fascinating way to look at films so i mean the the different lenses you used to kind of examine this were really astounding i thought Thank you so much. I think uh, one of the things that I was trying to do with the book is also tell this material but spatial history of cinema, of Bombay cinema, which means that you cannot extricate Bombay cinema and the city. Mm-hmm. So this is as much a book about films being made in Bombay as it is about the city itself. And there's a lot of moves being made now, right, to kind of impugn Bombay cinema, or to say, oh, we don't need Bombay anymore. We can create another film city somewhere else. And sure, of course, you should do that. Let there be a million film production centers all across this very film-crazy nation, right? We, we need it. But the, the argument I'm trying to make with the book is that even if you take Bollywood out of Bombay, right? Like if, if there's no production, say, it, the city will always be informed by its cinema, mm-hmm. which is why I do a kind of a spatial tracking of film practitioners and their practices through the city, which is why ecology is very important for me. Because when we say film industry, when we say film studio, we tend to think of some closed built space. Okay, film Mestan, okay, film city in, in Goregaon, or Yashraj films in, in Andheri West. But what I'm trying to say is that the film ecology is an ecology of work and practice that goes far beyond the studio. So the worker that goes from Yashraj films to have coffee at the cafe coffee day around the corner. So that cafe coffee day becomes part of that spatial history of film work, right? And then going from that cafe coffee day to the Andheri train station and taking a local train and going, I don't know, to Burivili East where she lives, right? That then also becomes part of that film ecology. Mm -hmm. So it becomes very necessary for me to bring all of these spaces, like tracked through the actual itineraries of these people, and to say that this whole thing is is the cine ecology. And why is that important? It's important because it helps us understand how is it that we are in a place today, even in a pandemic age of OTT and streaming, where Bombay cinema has such an important and powerful sway over our minds, our imaginations, our discourse, uh, the content of what we speak and what we watch. Mm-hmm. And Bombay City is very integral to understanding that. You're kind of putting me in mind of a movie that uh, just came out, uh, AK versus AK. Did you see that one? 
I started to see it. I started to get a bit annoyed with Anurag Kashyap's film. Yeah. Because I feel like, okay, I, I can see where this is going to go. Um, it was interesting. I mean, I thought one of the, the gutsiest things, which was also problematic, was him doing a very direct kind of flipping out like of um, the Me Too question. Yeah. Uh, him like really placing like in the foreground a possible sexual relationship with the woman that's his assistant who's shooting that film. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I don't know where we're going with this. But um, but yeah, I think it's interesting. Intuitively, I think I see where, where you're going with this. It's like when you go from the, the, from the studio to the police station and when you can make everyone believe that we're just rehearsing for a film, in a way, it's an illustration of what I'm trying to say, mm-hmm. that there is actually no inside and outside when you're thinking about important film cities where production and consumption is such an important part. And that could be... LA, it could be Bombay, it could be Berlin in the 30s, various places. Toronto and Vancouver especially, although they're always pretending to be a different city. But it's it's very difficult. This is where the sites of film production stop and this is where the outside of film production begins. So I think actually you're right. Uh, that really helps kind of make make that point. I would stick yeah, I would stick with AK versus AK with that issue you're speaking of. Um, I would mm-hmm. watch to the end because I think it, it it gets addressed in a satisfying way. You'll you'll see what I mean. Oh really? Yeah, that... Because I did think that he couldn't have just done this as just a random and uh, antagonizing move. There sh- there should be something more here. Yeah, okay. I don't, I don't want to spoil I'll, anything, but the the camera woman becomes a bit more important than uh, what is it, what what's being shown at the beginning. Okay, but then there's also Sonam Kapoor, <laughs> so I don't know. She's also not in it very much, Sonam Kapoor. <laughs> uh, you, you do get a lot of uh, Harshvadan Kapoor and some actually pretty good jokes about how uh, yeah, his, his earlier film with Vikram Aditya and Motwane, uh, Bhavesh Joshi, didn't do so well. But then when did Kashyap shows up, he's, I, I did. Yeah, I, I like Bhavesh Joshi. Because I saw Harshvadan do that freak out in that house and I was like, oh my God, this has to be the second most annoying star son I've seen. After Bollywood Wives. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but then it made me Google Bhavesh Joshi and it looked like a very interesting film. It is so a really I interesting should, movie. I should watch it. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I quite liked it. It's, it's another one where the social media aspect is really interesting. But I also liked how Harsh Pradhan is kind of trying to get a job with uh, Anurag. Like, he's like yeah. showing that yeah. he could be a badass so he, he could yeah. be in an Anurag Kashyap movie. I, I thought it was really interesting. But, uh, I'm just conscious of your time here. We haven't even gotten into the the three studios that you uh, feature in the book, but I feel like our listeners, if they're interested in finding out about uh, Sagar Movie Tone, Bombay Talkies, especially Bombay Talkies, I thought their their sort of scientific approach and you know top down management, uh, vertical integration, all that was really interesting and the most like a studio as I understood it from yeah. Hollywood. Um, but yeah. if you want to learn about more about that, I think you should pick up the book uh, Bombay Hustle, Making Movies in a Colonial City by Devashree Mukherjee. Uh, it's out from uh, Columbia University Press in New York. Uh, but there's also a cheaper Indian version, right? Like uh, there's a special there is. one that you I think can it's get. about 500 or 600 rupees on, uh, on, let me just say, like an online vendor near you. Yeah, it, it's... 
you know, sometimes it's expensive to get these uh, uh, university books, but I think you're actually quite, it's a really good idea to make that available uh, to the Indian public in a more accessible version, I, let's say. I think that's... Yeah, because it, it's $30 in the U.S. And yeah. I knew that when I was in India, I was not going to be able to buy a $30 book in India. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I really wanted that to be an India edition. No, you know your marketplace. It's like that, when it's like when Amazon Prime started there and they were so much cheaper than Netflix. They got so much more penetration. I, I don't love Amazon. I don't love their business practices, but they were smart on that one. But also, you know, in India, we have also ways to hustle our ways to find the free copies of things. Yeah. So I'm not going to mention anything, <laughs> but you guys know what to do. But yeah, if you want to learn more about uh, making movies in Bombay in the 30s, I would definitely recommend checking this book out. I think you're 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 kind of the opposite of an auteurist critic in a really interesting way because it's it's sort of labor criticism, but also the sort of not spiritual but kind of ontological thought of energy moving between the different uh, cogs of the machine. I thought was fascinating. So thank you very much for coming on the show today. But could I say one last thing? Go for it. Which is that I actually am quite anti-autorist. Um, <laughs> and that is... I got that from the book. <laughs> very fundamental to the book. Because yeah. I think it's... Uh, there's a lot that the autorist narrative disallows us from understanding mm -hmm. about cinema, about who makes it, and, and who makes decisions, and so on. And I'm also very much interested in a lot of thinking that is happening in the last few years that is very inspired by... What, thinking thinking with climate emergency, mm -hmm. the thinking with the end end of, of this planet, so to speak, and how it forces us to rethink questions about, you know, individual agency, intent, control, and the and the non-human. Mm -hmm. So one of the fundamental reasons for having creating this kind of framework of cine ecology is to say that films are not made by one person, right? They're made by ecologies of people. And they go beyond the human. Mm -hmm. So the the weather and the climate of Bombay, the fact that it's so humid, the fact that the monsoon really takes over the life of the city for three months every year, right? That there is a rocky kind of terrain just around the corner to shoot in. That all of these things shape the way films look uh, and how they're made. Um, and yeah, it's it's never it's never one one guy um, mm -hmm. doing it all. No, it's not great man theory. It's more, here's a sort of, maybe not a melting pot, but here's a place where everything kind of lined up and it, people were able to work together and make a thing happen. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Cool. I think that's a great place to stop. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, and we'll put a link in the show notes if you want to grab your own copy. But uh, yeah, I thought it was fascinating stuff. So thanks again. Thank you very much. It's really, really exciting and heartening that uh, that a historical book, right? Uh, that there's there's readership for it amongst people that love Bollywood films, and uh, yeah, this is this is exactly what I could have uh, I would have wished for for the book. So, thank you, thank you for inviting me to do this. BGC Bigs, that's Boys and Girls Clubs, Big Brothers Big Sisters of Edmonton and area, is looking for volunteers like you. Families that have needed help need it now more than ever. And with BGC Bigs, volunteers have the power to change the courses of young people's lives across our community during the pandemic and beyond. Together, we could ignite the hope that we all need right now. 
Dedicating your time to the life of a child or youth makes an impact that goes far beyond Zoom calls, video game battles, or tutoring sessions. Explore how you can get involved and watch our community change, one life at a time. There is currently a need for virtual mentors, tutors, and in-person volunteers to be big brothers or sisters. Join BGC Bigs for a virtual coffee in one of their online open houses to learn more about volunteering, and get more information at bgcbigs.ca or Google BGC Bigs. It's easier than you think. Hello, I'm Elizabeth Bonkink. I'm Andrew Paul. And we're the hosts of the Well Endowed Podcast. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation, or ECF as we call it. ECF provides grants to charities through the endowment funds we create and manage with our donors. Hence the title of our show, The Well Endowed Podcast. Every month, we bring you a collection of stories and interviews with fascinating guests who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. Through these stories, we look at the space where endowments intersect with your communities. So if you're interested in the people and issues impacting your community, check out thewellendowedpodcast.com. All right, and uh, thanks again to Debashree Mukherjee for coming on the show to talk about her book, Bombay Hustle. I really enjoyed it, and I think uh, you will too. There's a link to it in the description if you want to grab your own copy. Uh, We'll be back in two weeks with our uh, best of 2020 year-end episode. This is looking at the second half of 2020. And uh, yeah, a couple good things, I guess, happened this year. But uh, we'll uh, we'll let you know what we thought of the movies of the second part of the year that we were able to watch from home. So we're still cracking away at those. But uh, give us a little time, we'll get there. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at BollywoodPod. I'm at Matt underscore B-O-W-E-S. Aaron is at Aaron E. Fraser. Uh, We also have the uh, Tumblr with uh, some fun GIFs and uh, links and things. That's BollywoodIsForLovers.tumblr.com. You could follow us on Facebook, uh, just Facebook.com slash BollywoodIsForLovers. And uh, we really appreciate uh, ratings. We got a nice one the other day we're going to read out on our next episode. Um, If you're leaving a rating, we like Apple Podcasts a lot, but any podcatcher will do. But uh, if we, if you leave a rating, we haven't heard, you don't hear about it, maybe just drop us a line and we'll be able to find it if it's on a different sort of uh, podcatcher device than the big ones. So thanks again, and we'll see you in two weeks.